This week on Earn More Tutoring, I talk with Melissa Nolan about her 25 years of experience going from working in education to private practice, how to advocate effectively for children, and how going against the grain can be exactly what families need sometimes. The people that I found that I really respect are those that are extremely student-centered, are um, willing to go above and beyond, are willing to push the limits, are willing to do things differently, are willing to kind of go against the culture. And um, those are the people I've always sought out. Welcome to Earn More Tutoring, the number one education entrepreneurship show. My guest today is Melissa Nolan, founder of Bay Area Advocate and Assessing Kids. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, I'm thrilled to have you on. And so just to get started, I'd love for you to share what your different ventures are, what your what your business is and the different people you serve. So please just uh, share a little bit about that. Okay. I started as a school psychologist and worked in school administration for many years and then worked with two different developmental pediatricians in the Bay Area. And then from there, I branched off onto my into my own private practice. And right now I have a private practice in Walnut Creek. And through that private practice, I do two main things. I work as an advocate with parents who have students who have special needs, help them to understand the IEP process, the the Section 504 process, how to get services for students, um, what to do if their student is not succeeding in a typical school, and what other possibilities are out there. And then I also do assessments, um, psychoeducational assessments with some um, neuropsych to it as well. And those assessments, I specialize in dyslexia assessments, as well as dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and um, executive functioning, and ADHD. Such important work. And I'd love to know how you got into it. I know you mentioned you've worked in the past in schools, but before that, like, did you always know you wanted to work in assessment and, you know, education? Or how did you even make your first jump into the education field? I had no idea what I wanted to do. So went to college and just started taking some, I was a psych major as an undergrad, really liked my courses and then started taking some education classes and just enjoyed what I was studying. And then from there, I went on and got my master's degree. And then when I was in my first master's program, it was about assessment. It was about being becoming a school psychologist. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a school psychologist. I, I was just really actually not really thrilled about the assessments. And so started kind of thinking, what else would I want to do? So I did start working as a school psychologist, but then just opportunities came my way. I think that that's what happened is that people presented different options for me. And I took advantage of them. Rather than just kind of doing the same thing that everybody was doing, I would always take risks. And so it just, things just evolved where people would recruit me. I would say, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I would study further, whatever area it was. So started in school psychology and then pretty quick people were kind of thinking, oh, you might, you would be good for administration. And so went back and got another master's in administration. And then with that, just found that I was meeting great people. And through those people, I was 
thinking, oh gosh, this is really what, this is, I want to go in a different direction. So administration came around. And then after doing administration for a while, I started talking with some developmental pediatricians and different people in the community and found, wow, you know what? I really want to go into private practice. And then again, those opportunities came up and worked with different practices privately. So I would say, how did it happen is your original question. Things just evolved. I took advantage of of, um, options that were out there. Um, I love learning. And so always going back and studying and not being kind of afraid to jump into something that I really didn't have a background in and just connections, making connections with great people. I had a lot of really wonderful mentors that helped guide my kind of path and it brought me to where I am today. And those connections have lasted for, you know, I've been doing, I've been in the field about almost 30 years and they've just lasted and brought me to, you know, meet great people. I think a lot of people don't understand or realize the value of great mentorship and relationships. So I I previously worked in public schools. And while I had a lot of positive relationships, I didn't realize until I started working privately that you want to build and maintain these relationships and connect on LinkedIn or do whatever, you know, helps you stay in touch with these people, join groups. What were ways that helped you build relationships with mentors so they opened doors for you and kind of gave you a broader I guess, view of what was possible with your skill set? I think I was able to find people that I found were really bright and capable. And I was their their kind of vision of what they wanted for kids. My vision aligned with theirs. And so that's really key for me to, with who I work with or who I refer to and, and, and my, my different groups of people that I'm with. So um, it's once, once you're working with an administrator or um, a mentor in the schools, you're, you hear how they approach cases. And the people that I found that I really respect are those that are extremely student-centered, are um, willing to go above and beyond are willing to push the limits, are willing to do things differently, are willing to kind of go against the culture. And um, those are the people I've always sought out. And those are the ones that I've aligned myself with. So I think it's, it's so important to build those relationships and then from those experiences, I was able to see, okay, this is good leadership. This is what I wanna be like. Maintaining those relationships, staying in touch with those people. Um, and, and they knew I admired them. You know, you just kind of, it's its not that I was doing everything that they were saying, but I really was, you know, asking them a lot of questions. I was just trying to learn from their experiences. That helped me so much. And again, I just feel really fortunate. I was on the peninsula. I met incredible people, incredible connections. Um, Through my graduate program, I also met incredible people. So I think, and I've stayed in touch with them. And I've just nurtured those relationships over time. A lot of them are my close friends. Yeah, that's that's one thing that as I you know, moved into private practice, I realized, wow, relationships are so powerful. You know, of course you want the credentials and you want, you know, all the different things that go along with being able to serve students effectively, but the relationships and understanding what people need and how to learn from them is such a valuable tool and such a valuable practice, I guess, in itself. How do you stay organized with that? For, For example, for me, like I have a group of people that refer to me because they love the work that I do and the impact I have 
on their clients. So I put their names in a spreadsheet and I periodically like reach out to them and kind of rotate through. But I'm wondering, how do you, it's hard to manage when you have so many relationships and, you know, and how to, to stay connected with everybody. I'm wondering what your process for that is. Well, especially during the pandemic, I um, made a lot of effort to stay in touch with the people that I refer to and that I'm connected to. And so I actually have an advocate group that I meet with. And during the pandemic, we were meeting weekly. And then I also had a, a group of educational psychologists that we were meeting weekly. So every week, in addition to my job, which was really time consuming, I was doing these Zoom meets with these two different groups throughout the pandemic. And it was just such a rich experience because hearing how things were affecting different groups and how people were addressing those issues and just kind of finding out what's going on out in the community was is essential and it's ongoing because it kind of keeps you in the know of what's coming up. Um, what are the obstacles? Who are the, the people in charge? Who, where are there changes? Which districts are having changes in administration? Which administrators are difficult to work with? Who's, who's a great resource? All of those things came from these different group meetings from these very different groups of people. You know, one, even though we're all aligned in that we're, we're trying to help students, they're, they're not connected, the two groups. So that was something that I did. I started those two groups and kept those going throughout the pandemic. And I, I do a lot of that. I just, I, and I also do a lot of, if I know I have a friend that is looking for a specific type of job and I know a person in a district that I can connect them with, I do that. I know people say, oh, I'll connect you, but I, I truly do it. And so I, like, I just found out about another friend of mine that's leaving one district. And so I reached out to a director in another district and I said, Hey, I know this great person. You want to, you want to pick them up before somebody else snatches them up. So those types of things is connecting people. I love doing that. Like if, like if I find somebody who is wonderful, like you, I want to connect you with the school where I know that they can really um, benefit from your resources. And I do that more than not that more than other people, because I don't know how much other people do it, but I do it a lot. And I'm not making a profit from it, financial profit, but I just feel such a high from knowing, wow, I connected these great people. This is going to make a difference for these teachers and these kids and these families. It's just really, it's, it's very rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a great point is that not only is it a win-win for both of those people, right? The person looking for a job, finds a good position. The, the school that needs a position gets it filled. It, it's a win for, win for both of them. But for you, it's like exercising your, you know, social capital in a way, or, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I get to help these people. Like I, I totally empathize or, you know, that, that feeling it's so true to help people, um, just find good spots and it all comes around, right? I'm sure you've experienced that. I, you know, cause when people come to me and they're like, I want to do what you do, or like, how do I, where do I get started? It's not, it's not like a perfect, like, in it, I guess, as opposed to a pathway to become a teacher, for example, you do this many courses, you get your credential, and then you apply for jobs. It's different in the private practice world. I, and, you know, it's, it's about relationships in your network. And like you said, creating these groups and starting initiatives and, and having knowledge. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on that, like what the difference is between trying to do things, I guess, strictly by the pathway that's prescribed by the school and getting credentialed as opposed to creating your own business like you've done? 
I, I've had a mission in my mind and I, my mission doesn't always align with the culture of working in a school. Schools are wonderful places and, you know, it's, it's very hard to be an educator. There's also not barriers, but there are certain limitations at points that I think that educators face in terms of what they feel that they can do. And I've never, even though I have felt that, I haven't, it hasn't stopped me. Like if I, if I in my gut felt like I needed to do something for a student, I would do it. And it, I wouldn't lie about it. I would, I would be very transparent. I would let the powers that be, the, my, my, the administrators work that I was working with know. And I would explain why I felt like what I did was the right thing to do. But it might not have, it, it doesn't necessarily follow like what the school district maybe wanted me to do. And I think that that has been something that I'm glad that I've always done because I've been pretty consistent in how I treat families. And, you know, I still have relationships with long-term families that come back and thank me for doing things that I've done that kind of could have gotten me in trouble. Um, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And so I think that to be in private practice, that is what kind of also brought me, like pulled me to private practice is that I wanted to have that same vision, that same kind of sense of what I wanted to do without in the back of my mind thinking, oh no, is this going to get me in trouble? <laughs> you know, do I, do I need to censor what I'm saying? Do I need to follow up with an email to make sure that I'm covered? And um, so ultimately having a vision in my mind of what I think is or how I want to practice and um, maintaining that and just being consistent with it and, and reflecting on it when I've felt off base, like when, when cases come my way that things just don't go the way I want them to after kind of thinking about, okay, what did I do that I wish I had done differently? What wasn't aligned with kind of my, my um, intentions and how can I do it differently? So that has helped me. And I, I think like when I talk to a lot of other people who are starting practices, they don't necessarily have a vision or a mission statement of what they're following and they want to do it. And they think they kind of have an idea, but they, it's not really as clear to them. So I think that that's important. And it's something that I, I you know, go back and, and um, reflect on and have it's evolved over time. Yeah, that that point, I, I hear it from a lot of different great books and speakers is that idea of being mission driven and having that clear, not necessarily like I want to hit this target, but more like this. These are the values, I guess, that value. I, I'm moving towards and things are going to change as, you know, I'm going to figure out the best pathway to that. But one thing that has come up for a lot of guests and I'm hearing it and what you're saying, too, is that being aligned with your mission and your values is so important. And one thing as part of that conversation that we talk about is like your energy and how do you maintain your energy and kind of be in tune with that vision? Because it's a busy world and there's a lot of things going on. A lot of people have different needs. And so one of my guests, for example, Kat Norton, she talked about how she schedules masculine and feminine days and like masculine days are where she goes out and does a bunch of projects and meets with people. And then feminine days are where she like, maybe goes for a run and focuses on like, like journaling or that was how she described it. But I'm wondering, how do you kind of maintain your vision and maintain your energy and your enthusiasm for this? Because I know it can be demanding in the advocacy world when you're sometimes fighting battles for the rights of kids. Like, I'd love to hear about how you, mm -hmm. you kind of uh, keep that 
that vision close to your yourself? Again, it goes back to my relationships. I have really, I have really good people around me. And so for the advocate group, I I just adore the people that I have been meeting with. And so if I left a meeting that was really hard, which happens, I mean, I would say there's one to two meetings a year that just you leave and you're just like, oh, that did not go the way I wanted it to. And the others are, are really go well, but those one to two hit you hard. And when that happens, I go to the people that I trust and I say, you know, what do you think? Was I crazy? Am I crazy? And they they know to give me their honest opinion. I don't want them just to tell me something like, oh, you're you're fine. You're, you know, I want them to tell me the truth and so that I could be better the next time it happens. And so those hits with reflection and kind of evolving from them, then the next time I am better because of it. So even though you hate it at the time, it does improve your practice. So the reflection, going to people that I trust, um, getting feedback, being surrounded by great people. And then you have to take care of yourself. You know, the balance where, you know, I, I exercise, I get a lot of sleep. There are periods of time that I'm overworked. I, this past year with the pandemic, the, it was just, I was, there were some days, some weeks I was working seven day, days a week because it, it was just so insanely busy. So I would say my balance was not the best this year. But I'm definitely putting things, structures in place to make sure that I I'm not I don't get sick. Again, like I said, sleeping, talking to people that I trust, um, and then looking at my future calendar if I need to cut back and not have things be so crazy. Because with my assessments, I've had a lot this summer, and so now I'm planning to take just a couple of weeks off to re you know recoup before the school year starts because I'm anticipating next year is going to be insane. You know, we're coming back from the pandemic and it's it's going to be pretty crazy. So just kind of taking things in stride. And also, I think my my mental state about or kind of my perception on the job has changed, too. When I was younger, things used to really bother me so much more. And now with experience and with just kind of age, I just realize I'm going to make mistakes. I have to, you know, learn from them. I have to reflect on it and not be so hard on myself. Being kind to myself is important knowing that I'm human and it's not always going to go the way I want it to. But um, again, my motives, my intentions, my mission, all of that, all of it together is kind of, it, it works. And I love what I do. I absolutely love it. Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, I throw myself in to work because it's something that I have a sense of control with. Like I know what I can anticipate for the most part. So that feels really good. So in some crazy way, my, my job is kind of therapy for me. When you find that thing that you're good at, that the world also needs, and that you can kind of, to some degree, take control of, right? It's like no one's dictating your hours. You, you've decided your, your work and what you're doing and how you do it and who you work with. So that's just such an empowering feeling. And, and I've also experienced that as I've, um, you know, I formerly worked in public schools, but now have my own business. It's such... A great feeling. So yeah, that that totally resonates. In a way, it is therapeutic to see the 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 power of your own ability and to be able to apply it and and give it to others. Um, so that's fantastic. And then just for people listening out there, like the other big, I guess, pillars of how you stay in tune with your vision. What I'm hearing is that one, you surround yourself with really 
thoughtful people who are also experts in what you do and can give you feedback and maybe tough feedback feedback at times, right? That, you know, oh, well, actually, I probably would have approached it this differently. That's that's hard for people, right? You got to set your ego aside and and hear that, which, um, but it's so important, right? Like I, I had this idea one time, I was like, what if I created an app where you could just get feedback from a stranger and they would, you know, tell you what they thought of you, like after five minutes of meeting you. But I really, you know, I really thought like feedback is so important. And if you can't hear it, it's hard to grow, right? It's hard to, to move forward. And then what I'm also hearing you say is that, um, like rest, you know, and, you know, just those physiological needs like need to be met on a, on a daily basis. So all that kind of, it sounds like combines to keep the ship moving forward, um, and, and doing your thing. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about the, the group, because it sounds like you created it, but you've also been a part of it. And I noticed on your website that you've done like the advanced COPA training for advocacy and, I think I wanted to dive into that a little bit because I don't think a lot of people know about, I mean, they know there's like special ed lawyers and they know there's advocates to some degree and that there's special ed teachers, but it seems like you've really found this great niche where you've got the testing and assessment. You can do that, but you can also advocate. And, and it's kind of like this, this kind of special space in, in special education that is so essential. Can you tell us about how you found out about it and then also how you developed in that space to become a thought leader and an expert um, to help others. I love learning. Absolutely love learning. And the other thing that I wanted to add to the past, like what I do to keep myself kind of maintained and, and healthy is that I know that I don't know everything and I will never know everything. And that is something that I adore about our field is that at one point you could feel like you've really kind of gotten a hold or somewhat mastered an area of it, but then new information comes in. So that ongoing desire to learn is essential. And the ongoing desire to know that someone else might be right in what they're saying, that's different than what you're saying, and you need to look into it and, and learn. So I found out about COPA through advocates, other advocates. And there was a conference and I ended up going to it because, again, I wanted to, I knew the school's perspective and I had gone to a lot of trainings given by school district attorneys and learned so much rich information. But I wanted to find out, okay, you, you can have two different attorneys and they can see the exact same case and, and, and have a completely different opinion on, you know, the advice that they give. You know, how is that? And that's why I wanted to learn more from the parent side, the advocate side, the attorneys that represent the families. And when I went to the conference, it was just really an interesting experience because I got to hear from their perspective what it was like dealing with school districts and how difficult it was and how things that they thought were unfair. And so learning from the attorneys from the other side really was so essential because then you see you see both and you can understand why parents are feeling the way they are or why the school district is feeling the way they are and so it just it's just a different it's a, it's a broader perspective and being at that conference i just realized wow i i need to continue my training and i wanted to get the advanced advocate certification 
because even though I had been a school psychologist for so many years and I'd been an administrator in special education for over 20 years and gone to all these trainings ongoing for, for, for a very long time, I wanted more. And COPA was just really a rich experience for me. And it's a great resource for parents. It really is. And when I was at the conference, I met wonderful attorneys. I met wonderful advocates. And I've stayed in touch with some of those people. And again, increased my circle of kind of richness of different perspectives. So it's it's very interesting when I go and meet with my school friends and we're talking about special ed and I'll hear them say something that I know would push a button, would really make somebody uncomfortable from my advocate side. And I can, I can hear the different perspectives and why that they feel that way. And so I think that that's really added to my experience and my ability to then serve families because I'm able to tell them, look, this is what the school's thinking. This is how, and because parents will be like, well, do they not care about my kid? No, they care about your kid. They just see it very, very differently. And they're being advised differently. And that's very important. <laughs> if their attorney's coming in and advising them of one thing, it's, it's really going to impact how they practice. And so um, your original question was, how did I get into it? Again, just my desire to learn more about the field and from different people's perspectives and being open to it and going to a conference where I was really a fish out of water, um, but just ended up realizing that I agreed with a lot of what they were saying. And it, it definitely helped me and then made connections. Yeah, I I totally get that because now that you're you're sharing that, going to these different conferences after being on the school side or playing the special education or not playing, but being the special education administrator, you can embody so many different perspectives. And then for the family that you're serving, you're able to help them, or I guess I could say you say like temper their expectations, right? Because when I was working as a special ed teacher and there would be, you know, we'd be in these these meetings where the family had an advocate, like sometimes they were great. And like the, it, you you knew the advocate knew exactly like what was possible and it was a conversation. But then there was other times where the advocate was advocating for things that were just totally out of the realm of possibility. Like you're going to call my kid every day and then inform us right after that call of what's happening in the classroom. And it's like, you have to be realistic with what, you know, is possible. So it sounds like you have all those different perspectives kind of circling through your mind because you've been in, in the different environments, you've made friends with the people, you've connected with them, you've, like you said, put your, made yourself a fish out of water at times, but it's all come back to make you the best possible advocate, which I think is really, really powerful for a family to have access to. Um, so that, yeah, that's pretty incredible. So how did you make the leap from working in the schools to actually just starting your own business? Like what were the challenges there? And I know like, I love your website and, you know, there's a lot of things that you're not doing in the school that you're going to have to do to, to run your own business. So how did you make that leap and what, you know, what helped you on that journey? So I found that I was doing a lot of, um, giving a lot of free advice <laughs> which is good. You know, again, I was learning from doing that, but I just would have people calling me and asking like, what, what should I do about this? What about this? And so I just started thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe there's something here because I was finding so much joy in it, but 
I was also finding, okay, I'm still working for the school district. How can I kind of break this up that I could do both? And so I just started researching like who, again, the connection, who can I start learning from? So talking to other psychologists who had made the, the leap into private practice, talking to them, and then just finding out, you know, what did they do? What worked? What didn't work? And so I slowly started doing both. So I was working for the school district at the same time as starting to develop, to develop my private practice. And with time, I just, the private practice just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the connections again. And um, then I met more great people. I met, you know, a couple of amazing developmental pediatricians, one in particular, and just came under, you know, into their practice and then got that rich experience learning from a developmental pediatrician. Okay, wow, this is what the medical side is like. This is so rich. And, you know, she's, she was amazing because she was also willing to learn from me. That's the other thing too, is like when you're working with a mentor, if you, you could see that that person is, is listening to what you're saying and, and respects you back, that's it's so wonderful. And then we just kind of learn from each other. And I just started building confidence and connections and clients and just realized this is what I want to do. I, I really like being on my own. So research, talking to people, building it slowly, because, you know, you still have to be making money. (laughs) So it's hard to just take the leap. But once people start realizing the quality of what you can bring, and you have to be really good, (laughs) because that's the thing too. It's like in schools, unfortunately, sometimes you can hide and you don't have to be as good. But when you're in private practice, in order to keep clients coming back, you have to do outstanding work. And so just wanting that caliber of work and, and sharing it, all of it together, um, it comes together, it, it, it came together for me. But it, it takes time too. You know, initially when you're first getting out there and with age and experience too, I think that you have to have that experience. You have to have done difficult jobs and um, proven yourself and learn through those experiences before you can get into private practice. It's not something you can just jump out into. You really have to do a lot of different things first. It, it's almost like a guarantee in the sense that, yeah, you have to be really good at what you do, of course. And you can get better. Like you don't have to be the Michael Jordan of advocacy before, you know, at the beginning, but you, you want to aim for that. Right. But you have to, you have to really be responsive to your clients and learn from them. Right. And say like, well, what, what would you want me to do differently? Actually, I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that? How do you, and how have you, uh, because I'm sure you've learned things from what your clients want and don't want. How do you gather feedback, engage with them, build a relationship so that you're continually tuning your work to their needs? Well, I start off by talking to my clients and finding out what their goal is. I think it's not just that I want clients. I want to make sure that we are aligned as well. And if we aren't, that's fine. You know, I I completely respect whoever calls me and I can refer them to other people who I know might be more aligned with them. And so, especially for the advocacy, I'll find out, you know, what, what, what approach are you looking for? Um, And I find their goal, what's their goal? You know, what do they want in the end from hiring me? And I write that down and I always go back and I reference it. 
So throughout the case, I'm figuring out, okay, but your, your, your goal was, you know, you wanted to make sure, let's say your, your student got in, into a non-public school, let's say it's something like that. And so as things come up along the way, I'll remind them, you know, it's, I know that this, this teacher is being difficult and, and isn't giving you what you're hoping for, for your child, but we need to move around this person (laughs) because our goal is the non-public school. How are we going to get there? It's not about getting into a fight and having to be right in the IEP meeting with this person. It's about, we're needing to document what your concerns are and how the school district hasn't met your concerns. And so we need to move around them. So I think that that has helped is that I, I know what the goal is. And I remind myself and my client what their goal is and that um, that's number one. Number two is I get back to people very quickly. Even if I don't have an answer, I get back to them because I think what a lot of people do is they leave people kind of, if they don't know what to say, they leave them and they're waiting to gather information. But a lot of a lot of what we're dealing with is, is causing anxiety for these families. So they just want somebody to say, Hey, look, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to contact attack the attorney I work with and I'm going to get back to you. Okay. And I'll even email them. Okay. The attorney is on vacation. (laughs) I'll get back to you when they're off of vacation, just so they know I haven't forgotten about them, that they're important. Even though I have a, a ton of other clients, I have a million other things I'm doing. They're still in the forefront of my mind. So those two things, what is the client goal initially getting to that ongoing communication? And um, once we're done, and when when I say done, it means we've gotten to their goal. Then I will ask them, I'll say again, okay, this was your goal. What do you think? Do you feel, was, did it go as you were hoping to? And a lot of times I don't even have to solicit it. It's really interesting. It's been like in the beginning, I would solicit it more, but now my, I, the clients will tell me, you know, good and bad, you know, thank goodness. It's mostly good. They'll say, you know, thank you. This has been, this has been great. And um, if not, they might send me an email saying, you know, I'm trying to think of one thing that didn't go as well. You know, maybe I, I can't think of anything offhand right now, but it's, it's just been something that the, they've been, they've been giving me the feedback without my even asking for it. So that's been really helpful. Yeah, those those are such gems for people out there. The idea of holding the goal at the forefront, right? They've come to you, and, and I, I say this sometimes, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. If people have a crisis, you want to be there to help them problem solve and not miss the opportunity. And like you said, a lot of people... It could be they just don't respond, right? You know, they don't they don't check their email, uh, you know, except maybe once or twice a week. And you can't really build a business if you're not responding to your emails at least during the work the week work. You know, it's okay to uh, you know not respond over the weekends or to hold your boundaries there. But that was one of the biggest points that I learned as I started to start start a business was be the first to respond, right? Because if you're there, if you're responsive, it kind of signals that you're ready to work and engage and be helpful. Um, not that, you know, there's way more important stuff than, you know, so supporting your clients. So that, those are both great points. Yeah. That you want to hold their goal throughout the whole process, continue to check in, and then also be very responsive, open with your communication, right? Like they're on vacation. I like that. Like just, just keep, 
keep people informed. And it sounds like that's kind of part of your your uh, modus operandi or whatever they say. Like you are good with information. You're good at gathering it. You're good at sharing it. Like you you kind of hold the information and and share it, uh, you know, as needed or as as appropriate. So that's a great great skill. You have great executive function. I love it. <laughs> I got to say that. Coming from you, that's a huge compliment. Thank yeah. You. Well, and it's not all about what you hold though in your mind, right? It sounds like you have systems set up to hold all this information, which is a big part of executive function is that you don't necessarily have to rely on keeping everything in your mind. In fact, that's probably not the best way to do it. So how do you keep organized? You know, a lot of people struggle with like managing all their different clients and their goals. What are tools that help you stay organized and keep people's goals at the forefront of your work? I have a process when a client comes in so y'all get referrals from different people through my email, through my website. And as soon as a call or a, an email comes in, just like you said, I get right back to them. And then I immediately start documenting. So a lot of referrals don't end up coming to me, which is completely fine, but I still will write down, okay, the person's name, what their, what their goal was, why, what they wanted to accomplish, all of those things. And then once we sign a contract, then I make a file for them and I'm documenting. So I, I'm keeping information both in a, in, a, in a hard copy file that I have in my office, but also on my computer and um, just making sure that I get on things immediately. And then I, I have these different platforms that I use like Intake Q for, for which I have found has been really wonderful for my forms that I send out to clients. It's confidential, it's secure and you know keep my, my clients through that. And then just, I set it all up. Like I also set up their QuickBooks account immediately. So it's, I know everything is kind of already set up once they have signed their contract and then get back to them immediately. And after my meetings, I'll take notes within the file, like what was accomplished and what the next steps. And so the minute that I get a call from a client, I pull their file, I look to see, okay, where are we? Because again, I have so many different clients that I have to I have to keep everybody straight, and they're all important to me. So I want to make sure that I'm being efficient. So really making sure that I have something documented. It's not all in my head. No way. I have things written down, and um, also what I need to do next. And then after I have the file, if there's something I need to follow up with for a specific client, I then write it in my organizer or I put it in my phone so that I make sure, okay, I need to call that director. I need to, to make sure that the settlement agreement has come back and is signed and has, been, has gone to the attorney or whatever the step is, I make sure that those things happen. So it really, you do have to have good executive functioning skills because it's each case and there's so many of them has multiple steps. So within, I, I would say to somebody coming into the field to answer that question, have in your mind, what is the process that you want to follow? Like I have my form one that says the, the phone number that I need to get to get in touch with the person. I make sure that they're in my system through intake queue. I make sure that I have contact numbers for teachers that are connected with the case, all of that, because I know I'm going to need it later. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more about, you said intake queue. Is it, so what, is that a software or what is it? It's a website. And so I have a, a, you know, I'm, I'm a member of it. I pay monthly for a fee to be a part of it. And what I like about it is that it'll send, I have forms that I've made online, including my contract. 
And so when I get a call from a client, you know, we, we do the initial intake, which takes about 30 minutes. And then I'm taking notes on that person. And then if they seem like they want to go to the next step, then I say, okay, I'm going to send you a contract. You know, I need your email. I'll send you a contract. And then once you sign the contract, then I want you to send me all the relevant uh, paperwork, like the students' assessments, the report cards, um, the IEP, all of that information. And then I go to Intake Queue. And again, there's different platforms. So I'm not saying that that's the only one to use, but that's the one I like. And within it, my contract's already in there. And so I can even go if I make a special arrangement with the parent and um, they're going to pay me over a certain amount of time. I write that into the contract, but it's already set up. So it doesn't take me hours. It takes me 15 minutes to send the contract out. And then after the contract, then I email the parent and then they send me the forms. And then when they send me forms, I'm downloading all of what they've sent me into Intake Queue. Well, I'm uploading it into Intake Queue because it's a secure site. So I'm doing it immediately. And so because you just never know when a, a case is going to get hot, like when when it's going to go sideways, I should say, with the district, and I need to, to to really hit the ground running. So I like everything already organized. And I do that for all of my clients. That level of organization is so important. And also, I guess I would say like systemization of your processes, right? Like, uh, it's so important when you're running a business to try to identify like, where are the places where if I kind of optimize this, or if I have a tool like intake queue that I'm not going to be like going to my file folder and then like scanning it up and sending it, you know, it's like, how do you, that's, you know, and that's one of the big reasons I started the show was wanting to figure out ways from everybody. How do you optimize your process so that you can do the work, you know, so that right. the work is not the administrative, you know, all the, the paper pushing and all those things that get in the way of the actual relationships and support that you can provide. So, so yes, thank you for, for answering that question. Um, and what I wanted to ask you was, what's the biggest challenge that you're facing in your business right now? I don't have enough time. <laughs> I really don't. And like I said, during the pandemic, I was working seven days a week. And so the last two years, I have not stopped. And this last month, I was just telling my friends, I had seven assessments in one month that I was doing, you know, psychoeducational assessments. And it was insane. And it's, there is, there's just too much work. And that makes me sad because it just shows the need and I anticipate that coming back out of this pandemic, it's not going to slow down for the next few years. I really, I don't think so. Because I just, the number of calls that I get, the number of parents asking for help, people need help. So that would be my number one. So my biggest, again, my biggest obstacle is also my my, my greatest advantage because I know that I have work. Um Oh my goodness. What is the obstacle? What are the obstacles? Oh, another obstacle is that a lot of the people that I want to help aren't in my immediate area are not in my immediate area. So, you know, I'm, I'm located in Walnut Creek and I have clients coming to me from Modesto and this is for the assessment part of it, um, which is, you know, I feel badly for these families they're, they're coming from far distances just to, to get assessed. And I, I, I say to them, wow, there's no one in your area. 
And for whatever reason, you know, I, I wish that there was a way to do more of what I do remotely. So, and there, there, I think our field, my field with the assessments is getting better in that, but there's still question, like, is it really a valid assessment if you're doing part of it virtually? So I'm still doing assessments in person, but I wish more of what I'm doing in terms of assessment could be done virtually. Like the, I like to do classroom observations as part of my assessment. And so if I've got a client in Modesto, that's, you know, really hard <laughs> to do the observation to drive all the way to Modesto from where I am. Um, okay, what are the other obstacles? You have to be organized unless you're able to hire somebody who can be that person who does it for you. So, you know, thank goodness, like you were saying, I, I am organized. So that for other people, you need to be organized. Another obstacle is the, ass the assessments that I write, the reports. They take me hours and hours and hours and hours. And so they are not quick. It takes me like 24 hours to write <laughs> the reports that I write. So um, I wish there was a way that that could be more efficient, but I haven't have yet to figure that out. But I'm working with other psychologists, asking them what they're doing and, you know, trying to still make it a really individualized, personalized, authentic, efficient assessment while still finding ways to make it not so time consuming with the writing. It's, it's such a, it's a profound and ongoing question. Like, how do you continue to provide the same level of service, but do it remotely? Um, which is something that I am also, you know, grasping and struggling with. And it's an, to me, it's an exciting question. I think this, this era has, has shed some light on the fact that a lot can be done remotely. So it's a great question for us to continue to explore and then write, yeah, organization and just staying on it, you know, and, and it's a continue, it's never, it's a never ending journey towards higher levels of organization. But thank you. Thank you for sharing those. Do you attribute your, your success more to luck or hard work and why? Hard work. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely hard work, but, uh, but there is luck sprinkled in there too. And the luck I would say are the people that I've met the connections, but yeah, lots of hard work because I wouldn't say that. Yeah. Learning doesn't come naturally for me. I have to like reading and writing. I, I have to work really, really hard. And that's been the case, college, graduate school. I wasn't the first person to finish. I was one of the last to finish, but I think it, it built stamina. And so I'm not afraid to work those long hours. The luck comes in that the people, there were, there were rich opportunities that I took advantage of. And I wasn't afraid to fail. You have to be okay with failing and not being comfortable. I'm used to being very uncomfortable going into places and not really kind of knowing what I'm going to kind of run into, but just kind of looking at it rather than as something that's scary. It's, it's exciting. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds really nerdy, but I just think it's so exciting to just be able to learn. And I'm excited for this next year. Does that sound insane? Like I was with some educators this past weekend and they're like, Oh, it's going to be terrible. I'm like, But wait, there are opportunities to do things differently. There are, I, that's so exciting. We can evolve. We have evolved. Look at the fact that, look at how you're interviewing me. And, and this is so exciting that we're doing this. This wouldn't have happened in the past. I love this. 
So, Melissa, now it's time for the hot seat. I've got some rapid-fire questions. Are you uh, ready to get started? Ready. Let's do it. All right. Apple or Android? Oh, Apple. (laughs) Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs went to my high school on the peninsula. So, yeah, Apple. Go Apple. Yes. Wow, that is that's pretty cool. Thank you. So I, this is the first time I've asked this question, but I'm excited to uh, ask it to you. Who would play you in a movie? Oh my gosh, Molly Ringwald. <laughs> Only because people have told me in the past that I look like her, even though I don't think I do. But yeah. Do you believe in aliens? Why or why not? You know, I, uh, I would say there's something going on. I don't know if I'd call it aliens, but there's, there's so much beyond us, which again is exciting to think that, you know, who knows? So I would say, yes, aliens exist, but I wouldn't call them aliens. There's, there's other things going on. Got it. Best album. I really like pink. (laughs) I saw her in concert. So anything by her, I just think her voice is incredible and she's just kind of a strong woman and doesn't, you know, she cares, but she doesn't care. She'll do what is right for her. So I just adore her. If a book was written about your life, what would the title be? She had nine lives. Yeah. There's been a few times I've almost died. So, but I've come back miraculously from a lot of just incredible events. Wow. Wow. I'll have to hear, I'll have to hear more about that sometime. Sure. So Melissa, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I so appreciate your time and your story. If people want to follow up with you or learn more about your work, connect with you, what's the best way to do that? So I have my two websites, Bay Area Advocate and Assessing Kids. Dot com. So just, yeah, check me out. Send me a message if you want me to, you know, just even a consult to talk about your case. Um, I'd be happy to do that. I just really enjoy meeting people and helping families. So, Do you want a copy of the book I most credit with helping me earn more tutoring? It's called Clockwork by Mike Michalowicz, and I'm giving away a free copy each week to a lucky listener. All you need to do is leave a review of the podcast, take a screenshot of your review, and send me it with your address to info at earnmoretutoring.com. I'll randomly select a winner each week. Join our email list, stay in the loop, and attend events by putting in your email on earnmoretutoring.com. This show is written by Sean McCormick. The show is produced by Casey Sticker and Sean McCormick. Music production is by Casey Sticker. Project management is done by Maya Pukach. To learn more, go to earnmoretutoring.com.